Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 6. This Skewed Loop. Sunday, September 24th, 1941. Hollis has moved. Somehow he now sits upright against the side of the plane again. A great hole through his face. And he keeps wanting to show me the photograph of his wife that he carries in his breast pocket. I tell him no, but he keeps on at it. And if I veer too far away, he screams, Logan! 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 So I come back and sit with him. Listening to him talk about his wife, and I cry until he stops. Worse than all that, though, is that he has since called my father to the scene. Somehow, father stands on the wings and berates me for moving, for not moving, for doing too much or too little. As I write this, he is threatening to beat me over it, but he seems not to move from his position, and therefore, I think, cannot see me underneath the opposite wing. He and Hollis talk to each other now. I could hear their voices drubbing through the metal, but not their words. How did it come to this, I wonder? How has this happened? Logan! 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 It won't stop, you see. It's incredible to me how the voice of a man who spoke so little can be so burned in. But I know I am losing it. <laughs> I know. I've read through what I've written and it's all wrong. I've half a mind to go and put a bullet in both of them. Maybe another round or two will silence Hollis. Maybe my father will cease to judge me if Hollis has more holes in him. I think, though, that I should like to save one for myself. Earlier today, Hollis was telling me about the rules, about how it all worked. He told me I'd not get past the gates of heaven since I have murdered a man. And since I'd soon have to shoot myself, too. <laughs> I told him I didn't care. That no god who lets this happen is worth anyone's time. 
And that was when he began screaming scripture at me again. You would think he would want to be with his wife, <laughs> to be at peace. Why did you land the plane? He asked me. What do you mean? I said. Why didn't you just plow us face first into the ground? We'd both be happier then. It is a question I've been asking myself for the past few days. Why, when I knew there to be nothing but sand for miles in each direction, did I attempt to let us live? Perhaps it was muscle memory. Perhaps the body takes over from the mind in those moments and completes rituals learned during training. You know how it is, Sean. I certainly don't remember making conscious decisions in the moment. But if we died then, I'd not be here writing this. I'd not have to listen to the screams of a dead man. You'd not have summoned my fucking father to judge me in wide, cartoonish gestures from atop the wing of this stupid plane. I won't survive. I know this. My mind already hasn't. But then, I knew that would be the case. The first entry in this doomed journal was written in the comfort of my barracks, but I knew even then that something fatal would happen. Not because this is a war, and men die in war, but because I could feel something brewing. Something big. So I think this has always been a parting letter, in a way. This has always been me ending it. When I think of some appropriate last words, I'll finish. Right now. Hollis's relentless screaming is filling me with too much malaise. High above London's skyline, in the icy tops of the atmosphere, the world was black and pure. The moon had slotted into place across the face of the sun, rendering, for a short time, everything in its view dark and lifeless. Up in the clouds, the absolute darkness of those fleeting moments was simple. From there, everything seemed cleansed, straightforward. It was only by descending that things worsened, becoming murky and muddy, and peopled with the full gamut of human noise the closer you draw towards the ground. At street level, although still unnaturally dark, there was chaos, there was sadness and confusion, there was death. And that was where James Logan was, and that was when James Logan was, at least for a while. He had come belting through the front door of his house, after Laura, rounding the corner just in time to see the silhouette of a car race along the black road into which she had stumbled. It was exactly as it had been the first time. They had fought, she had run out of the house and the car had struck her down, wiping her mind of its many thousands of fears and loves in a single beat. And though... He had never been able to remove the image or the sound of her bones breaking against the metal and glass from the first time it had happened. He was horrified by it more now than ever, 
because it had all happened in exactly the same way. It had all happened again. Only, he realised, the car was different this time. This was a beige saloon. The car that had struck Laura down the first time was green. He remembered because its sickly colour had clashed so vibrantly against the blood ribboning out from a great crack in Laura's skull. Cars, their makes and models and colours, seemed a strange thing to get hung up on, he thought as he ran towards her body. This is a strange thing to think of. But the extraordinary sadness and shock had shut a large part of his brain down, so these finer details were suddenly presenting themselves as being much more important than they ought to have been. He felt distance from what was in front of him, almost as much as he felt deeply connected to it, and that was a horrid plane of consciousness to be locked in. It was a loop, he thought. It was all a strange loop, one that he'd been part of at least once already, maybe since forever. There was something of theatre to it all, the essence of a repeat showing he was tiring of. private detective was talking to him. I... I'm sorry. He had screamed something at her when he'd first arrived at the car's side, though now he was silent and the P.I. was speaking, exclaiming her shock in a looped pattern. Oh, Christ, Logan. I... she... She had not been there the first time round. It had been a woman, though. He remembered her staring at him from the driver's seat. This was different. In that regard, he thought. The P.I. was out of the car. She was waving and shouting and holding a hand to her face and shaking her head. Her words came through only in muffled tones, as words James could not interpret for all the jangled signals in his mind, each one trying to prod him with its own electric version of meaning, its own attempt to make sense of what was happening. In the false nighttime of the eclipse, Laura's bloodied skin looked so pale and smooth, he thought, so pristine. It was only her eyes, wide and dilated and fixed so obviously on the eternal nothing behind him, that stopped her from looking angelic. Maggie Hollis was shaking. She had been looking at the sky as she drove, marvelling at the way the moon had so perfectly blotted out the sun and at how this bright mid-morning had transformed from crisp and white and warm into pure night in a space of seconds. She had been pondering the notion that everything was out of her control, and how easily nature and physics and the many laws of things could opt to make it night, how easily they could draw a curtain across the sky and change the rules. It was sudden and unnerving. Later, she would remember feeling a vivid and worrying sense of powerlessness as she stared, the fleeting outer ring of light burning spots onto her only good retina. But in the shock of the moment, she could only remember the car lurching and the sound of a dull scream as a woman had broken in two across its bonnet. It was the most horrendous sound she had ever heard, the sound of snapped bone and of life being sucked clean out of a young throat mid-yell.
In the confusing moments immediately after, she had somehow exited the vehicle and walked around the front to be by Laura's side, and though she managed to string together some words, Maggie could not move. I, I'm sorry. I, oh God, oh my God, Logan, I, she. James was not listening. He wondered instead if Laura might have exactly the same injuries as last time. He wondered what would have happened back then had he not immediately travelled back. And then it dawned on him. He could do it again. He could travel back again. So he stood, giving Laura one more fleeting look and thinking to himself, I will see you again soon. And he ran. James ran straight and true back to his house through the ungodly darkness, ignoring Maggie's pleas. He opened the door and climbed the stairs and brought himself level with the boarded-up door, which welcomed him with a sickly wave of its festering scent, landing with all the subtlety of a punch to the face. He breathed it in deeply against his instinct and his shame, this evil smell of his making. The door was covered in layers of black bin bags, taped tightly to the frame. In front of that was a chair, its back fixed under the protruding plastic which hid the door handle. It seemed stupid now, James thought. Why put the chair there? It was only the smell he was trying to contain, so the chair's presence seemed more like a warning from some past version of himself, like a deterrence intended only for him. Nervously, he slid it out from under the handle and cast it aside. It toppled off the edge of the landing and tumbled down the stairs, crashing and flipping against the walls as it went. With no time for tact, he pushed a hole into the black lining with his index finger and took to tearing at it like a rabid animal. It came away in torn clumps to reveal the closed door behind, which he pushed open as soon as he could feel for the handle, eyes closed. The smell quickly worsened, as if he had stepped through a thick wall of it, but he didn't dare open his eyes to look at its origin. He simply stood in the middle of the room, eyes closed, waiting and whispering prayers to whomever might listen. And for a short while, nothing happened. There was just the smell, and the silence, and the dark, and the shame. It was only as he heard Maggie enter the house down below that something shifted beyond his closed eyelids. The light, which had been totally absent from every corner of the house since just before Laura ran out, began to return. James kept his eyes tightly closed, squeezing their lids shut to the sills, but the darkness quickly faded and their fleshy orange colour returned, before being replaced by something much brighter than anything in the room had any right to be. He opened his eyes in time to see the features of the room evaporate in a brilliant white. It was working. He had experienced this once before, from inside this room, and it had been exactly the same. He began to laugh. The white melted everything around him, as though it were waves of bleach splashed across a busy canvas, wiping the bed, the floor, the window and the walls away together. James could hear Maggie climbing the stairs and calling his name, but the sound of it was much slower than it should have been, reaching him only as warped, elongated hums. And then the whiteness turned indigo, a beautiful shade, 
the kind he had seen only once before but could never forget, and it was all around him from head to toe. And he was lifted from the floor, which was licked into non-existence by the light's purple-white crests, so that he was floating in the ether but moving steadily in a direction he could not interpret. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is this all you have planned for me? He thought. Is it just this on loop? It seemed like such a strange circle. Then his movement through the crystal nothing quickened. Hastily, he was pulled through the void, in such a way as to make the swirling whites and the flowering purples form a tunnel all the way around him. And finally, he could tell that he was moving upwards. It was beautiful. It was his own private loop, and it was stunning. He wondered how he would do it this time, how he would kill the version of himself that would shortly appear in front of him. The last time had been messy and frantic and fraught with a desperate fear. He worried that this time there might be two versions of himself to contend with, that the versions might pile up. And he worried about how he could possibly still pass for 27. But more than anything, he wanted so much to see Laura again, alive and well, he wanted, on his third run, not to waste the chance to tell her that he loved her and how powerfully. 
He wanted to be able to convey the feeling he got when her eyes drew a path to his. How it would turn him upside down inside. How the very essence of her seemed to be alive and glowing and that she had some magic thing which set her apart. It seemed to James that the universe had given Laura something unique and powerful and that he must have been doing things wrong for her to keep dying on him. He wanted so much to do things right so that whatever amazing thing she was capable of was allowed to come to pass. But he did not have long to think about all this, nor the chance to action it. The warm light soon slowed at his sides, and the tunnel turned back to blank space. And then, the purple dissipated into the white, like blood in water, and the white began to paint features onto itself in lapping waves. James was expecting to see the inside of his bedroom once again, he expected to land just behind a younger version of himself, as he had done before. But the scene that began to build around his feet was alien and bright. As the light faded, James could see a burning orange take its place beneath him. It was blinding, more so than the white, which had now ebbed into nothing. He looked above himself in time to see the last inch of moon peel away from an angry sun, blinding in its power and thick in its heat. And as the final residue of the white light which had taken him disappeared from view, the sounds around him began to speed up. They turned from a thunderous, slow roar to the sound of dry wind and of shouting. Only now, it was not Maggie Hollis shouting, nor a younger version of James himself. It was his father. James span on his heels to see a young man with his father's features, standing in front of the wreck of a plane, with a gun held to his own temple. And he was screaming. Who the fuck are you? He was shouting over and over. Who are you? Where the hell did you come from? And then... Don't come any closer. Dad? The shock ricocheting around James's mind was clouding the fact that he already knew, deep down, that this would happen. He knew at some stage that this exact scenario would play out because he had read about it so often, over and over. Philip Logan, just 18 years old, looked a child to James. He was small and weak, emaciated, barely able to hold the pistol high enough. And the boy's shaking was worsened by the unbearable heat which had surrounded James from nowhere, sending shimmers in the air along the lengths of everything. Philip kept the gun to his skull, index finger rubbing back and forth along the trigger. He won't shut up. Hollis <laughs> won't fucking shut up. Philip said, tears on his cheeks. And father won't. He won't stop. And all of them. Dad, don't do this. You can't do this. Shut up. Shut up. You're just like him. All of you just shut up. So James did shut up. He walked with his hands aloft towards the shadow of the man he knew to be his own father, with pity and understanding rumbling in him, saying nothing. Don't, don't, I, I don't know who, who, look, don't. But Philip hadn't the fight in him to stop James from trying to grab the weapon. He clasped a hand around the nozzle and attempted to bring it down to waist level, which he managed before the quivering young man just ahead of him began to struggle against his guidance. No, Dad, you need to... Don't fucking call me, man. Don't. 
No? No, I'm sorry. I... I... Oh, said James. He recoiled from the blast and was, momentarily, relieved to have come away unscathed. But then he felt a burning heat coming from the middle of his arm. He traced a line down it to the elbow and saw nothing, and then on further to his hand, which had turned to pulpy matter beyond the palm. He stared at it for a moment at the bloody, splayed wreckage of where his fingers had been a moment prior, and sank to his knees. No! No! Philip was saying. No! No, 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 no! As James collapsed, he caught another flash of fiery red. He resolved to focus on it, through the spaces in his hand, and realised that it was blood, and that it was ebbing from a central point in his gut. The bullet had torn straight through both, fingers and abdomen, but its impact seemed to hurt in the wrong places. His arm felt hot and his stomach cold, and his vision was growing smeary, as though a damp rag had washed across the glass of his eyes. Even the immense desert heat seemed suddenly to fade, ushering in a call that would almost have been pleasant, were it not for the sickly unfamiliarity of everything. A moment ago, he had seen his wife die for the second time, and he had expected to receive another try to stop it from happening. At least another few years of watching her, if nothing else. He looked up at his young father, who had dropped the gun and was sheltering his cheeks between both hands. Oh, Dad. James sighed. What have you done? But that was all he said, useless as it was. He wanted to tell his father that now he was finally finished that he had made all the required steps, and that whoever or whatever was in charge had chewed him up and spat him out for reasons he didn't understand. He wanted to say that, despite the situation, he knew that his father would survive this stranding because he had to. His odd, elliptical path through life would not be possible otherwise. And he wanted to tell his father that it was okay to forgive him for all his sins but he couldn't Philip Logan unsure and unknowing of so much that had passed and that which would follow had chosen an arbitrary spot in the middle distance and was running towards it as fast as he could lying in a heap on the arid ground James felt the life in him draw in towards the centre of his being and out through the hole in his body he grew heavy with the burden of purpose and of endless repetition and of knowing that he would end up dying here again and again and he wondered how many times this skewed loop had already played out and to how many others and why. And then he felt nothing, his senses muting until such a time that he would be born again in the thick summer of 1972 under the midday darkness of a total eclipse in the Canadian backwaters. His eyes and mind glazed over, and that was that, for a while, at least.
Season 1 of Unresolved starred Sarah Langridge-Smith as Zoe Drew, Jane Copland as Maggie Hollis, Simon Gruwich as James Logan, Emily Beach as Laura Ray, David Frias Robles as Tom Ray, Ben Carpenter as Mark Thompson, Simon Cox as Dr. Jonathan Edwards, Paul McLaughlin as the young Philip Logan, and Martin Levinson as elderly Philip Logan, with narration and other announcements by Marco Violino. Supporting roles were played by Penny Rohde, Ted Roy Newell, Andy King, Henry King, Holly Keeble, Michael Entwistle, Samuel Furness, Margaret Sutherford, and Richard Tyler. Unresolved was created, written, and produced by Adam Bunker. Please note, Unresolved is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. For more information, visit www.unresolvedshow.co.uk. Thank you for listening. September the 1st, 2003. It's terribly upsetting looking back at all this. They say time heals wounds, but that's clearly not true. The deepest scars in men stay open forever, in a way despite all the years doing their best. I've lived a rotten life, one full of feverishness and false starts. I am a man with poor choices behind him and no time in which to correct them. All I can do, I suppose, is try to... Well, try to justify them, try to excuse myself somehow, and attempt to pass on some rank meaning. I'm eighty years old now, James. I'm dying, they say, which is fine, because I think I've lived far too long and done far too little with it all. And top of that list of undone things is being your father, of course, which is something I failed at so spectacularly that it wrenches at me even now. But then I failed at a great many things, including filling this diary, as you'll now have seen, and as I knew I would. But maybe that doesn't matter. A diary should document a man's important moments, and I think mine all happened together, condensed into just one week. The week I crashed that damn plane in the middle of the Libyan desert, and the mania that soon followed. Those were my key moments, because those hours and days shaped so much of who I am. They shaped how I was with you, and that, in turn, has surely shaped you, too. I cannot read back through the last few entries in this book without squinting through tears and shame, James. It causes such a stir in me. I was just a boy then, you know, just eighteen. What the fuck did I know of anything then? I was ill-prepared for the way the universe works. How cruel and strange it is. I know very little more now, truth told. 
In truth, with the benefit of six decades to think about it, I still only know the following things to be objectively true. One, I shot and killed Sean Hollis, without question. Two, after several days I ran from the wreckage and was, somehow, picked up by an Allied convoy bound for the Libyan-Egyptian border. There is no real excuse for the first, I know that. But as you have now read, I believe Sean had gone, or was always quite mad. I believe now that he always wanted to die in that war, James. That was his aim. And when his leg was all but destroyed, well, he longed for death even more, in a way I've never seen since. The problems, and this is so hard to write about even now, arise in the space between those two points of fact. There is no way to describe the type of insanity that arises in that kind of heat, with guilt rising up in you and hydration dropping and with hopelessness building. It cooks the brain, James. It warps your senses. And you have seen it in my writings, the scrawlings of a lunatic. I could hear Sean yelling at me long before his death. I could see my own father there lambasting me. I saw many others too. I felt surrounded by people at times, friends, family and strangers, whose collective jobs seemed to be to drive me to suicide. And it worked, I suppose. I was stuck in that scene of death and taunting and madness long enough that I ended up with my side arm held to my head, four bullets in the chamber only needing one. And then it went dark. The white hot slate above me went to blackness, the sun blotted out. I know now that it was an eclipse, just the same as the day you were born. A total solar eclipse, blotting out North Africa for no more than a few scant minutes. But at the time it seemed as though the world was piling on itself. It felt heavy, for want of a better word. The darkness was dense upon my shoulders. It lasted a lifetime. And then one last figure arrived at the scene, removing all the others at once with his presence. The man who saved me. The man who stopped me from ending it. The man with your face. Even now, decades on, I still don't know what things were real and what were only my crazed imaginings, but I know something for sure, real or not. He looked like you, James. He looked so much like you. He had your face, my son. And that, though I know it won't bring you any comfort, is why I left you and your mother. That's why. You grew. You changed from a boy into a young man. And I, well, I couldn't deal with the memories that surfaced. I couldn't understand any of it. It began to suffocate me whenever you looked at me, whenever you spoke to me, when you and I were in the same room, it felt like being back there again, in the desert, in hell's belly. It was sending me insane once more, James. So I left to save us all. And I have lived a meek, hidden life since. I'm sure you think me mad. Uh, I know how it all seems, but that's far too late to do anything about now. I don't have long left. Only a couple of months at best. Only really long enough to tell you this. The only thing that matters. You are important, James. You are important in ways I don't understand. If you can sense it even just slightly, don't be afraid of it. 
like I have for so very long. Don't be scared of it. Don't ignore it. Explore it. Find out who you are, James Logan. Find out what you're here to do and do it. Because I never did. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.